welcome to the Shiro Podcast, where we celebrate women in the legal profession and discuss some of the challenges and issues they face. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Today, we have an exciting podcast episode. This is Sarah Giddings with the Texas Young Lawyers Association. I am District 15 Director. Today, I have two people that I'm very excited to introduce. The first is Dickie Grigg. He's an attorney at Spivey and Grigg and has been trying civil cases for over 40 years. He received his undergraduate degree from Texas Tech and his law degree from the University of Texas. He has received numerous awards, including the State Bar of Texas Litigation Section, Excellence in Litigation, the Austin Bar Association Distinguished Lawyer Award, and the American Bar Association Board of Trial Advocates, Trial Lawyer of the Year. Most importantly, he is the father of today's Shiro, Erica Grigg. Erica Grigg is currently the staff attorney at the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program, or TLAP, as it is known. She received her undergraduate degree and law degree from the University of Texas and is currently taking classes to receive her master's in clinical education from Lamar University. Prior to joining TLAP, she served as a criminal prosecutor, general counsel to the Texas legislature, special assistant to the chancellor at Texas Tech University, and as an attorney at Spivey and Grigg. Kind of on an exciting note, Erica attended the 2018 Academy Awards for his role for her role as plaintiff's counsel in the Oscar-nominated short documentary, Traffic Stop. I'm very excited today to have Erica here as she is one of my personal sheroes, and I think her story and what she's going to share with us today is going to be rather exciting. So the first question before I turn it over to Dickie is how did both of you get interested in legal practice? When did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Thank you, Sarah. You know, I, always, I grew up in a family of football coaches, and I always assumed I would be a football coach. And my senior year at Tech, uh, Ken Hance sort of took me under his wing and told me I ought to go to law school. And so I did. I didn't have the grades to get in Tech. I moped around for a while, took second best, and came to UT. And uh, you know, I guess I've just sort of never looked back. And uh, Erica, I'm really interested in uh, growing up in a family with a lawyer when you became interested in being a lawyer. Well, first I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, but then I remember we, uh, in elementary school, there was this school-wide school retreat that we would go on called Live Oak. And the basis of this retreat was, you know, we would elect mayors and city council people and stuff and, and you know, function like a city. And we were supposed to learn life skills. And anyway, somehow I was elected a, a, as, what, 12 years old, 11 years old as a city council member. And I had to, um, my role was to save the city from getting a Disney World. And I remember getting up in front of all my classmates and, and trying to make arguments for why we didn't want Disney World to be in our city. And I remember, you know, when I was closing, it came to me to say, are we men or are we mice? And everybody stood up and clapped. And I knew then that I loved being an advocate and I loved speaking um, on behalf of someone and representing someone in, in front of people of people and so that's when I knew I wanted to be a lawyer it was fifth grade for me well you know you were always a show off and <laughs> so I guess that uh, maybe sort of helped you uh, decide to go into trial work uh, tell us a little bit about it because 
uh, even though there were a lot of women starting to get into trial work, when you uh, started out, you know, it was still a man's world. And uh, how did you as a show-off do in a man's world? Well, you say show-off. I say I always really, um, I've hated bullies. Like, even growing up in high school, you know, I was always the one jumping in and defending someone. And so I thought trial work would just be such a natural fit for me, just, you know, going up against corporations. or And I, I do personal injury work, for those of y'all that, that don't know. I, I was a personal injury lawyer before I worked at TLAP, and um, I saw it as an opportunity to, um, you know, stand up for people that didn't have a voice. And, um, you know, something interesting in, in this, you know, in a minute we'll probably get into my personal story, but... Something that was always really interesting for me as a woman in the man's world of litigating, and it's definitely getting better, but was I was always really cognizant of, am I coming across crazy? Am I coming across as aggressive? Um, you know, I, I, it was such a weird balance in um, representing someone and advocating for someone. Um, I was always really aware of, and especially early in my career, you know, kind of paralyzed by, you know, should I be myself and be aggressive and really advocate or, you know, am I going to come across to people, to a jury, to other lawyers as, you know, quite frankly, you know, being, being bitchy or, you know, being, um, being an angry woman. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a stigma that, I think a lot of women who are in this profession have to fight and uh, figure out a balance. And well, who were some of the women as your career developed that uh, were sort of role models or I guess we could say sheroes to you? Well, you know, as far as the legal world is concerned, Charla Aldis is a shero of mine and she's a personal injury lawyer out of Dallas. and. I mean, I think she just got a $38 million verdict right, representing someone who was uh, paralyzed in a um, car wreck, and she won against Honda. It was a really big victory. But something that I am so appreciative of um, Char Charla for is that she was the first lawyer that I saw being her authentic self. And just she's outgoing. She's aggressive when she needs to be but she's 100% authentic. And I know when I started out litigating, I was really, I was trying to fit in this mold that just wasn't me. And I really seeing Charla in action, and I think that I saw her in Midland on your, your train case, um, y'all were trying to case together, and just seeing her in her element. Um, I mean, and I remember Charlie even took up, she had these huge, like, um, note cards and they were rainbow colored you know like a kindergarten teacher and she would take them up to that you know podium with her when she was talking to the jury or whatever and and just be like you know I'm a mom and I've got three kids and we had construction paper left over so I took notes on construction paper and um, the jury just loved her I mean she just embraced who she was and I, it, it really liberated me as a female attorney um, to see someone be successful just being who they were well, $38 million here, 
Right? It works. It who, works. Who else besides Charles? Well, so um, someone else that I really looked up to um, was Wendy Davis. And I, I spent some time at the legislature, and um, I watched her do her filibuster. Um, and although I totally agree with her politically, it wasn't even the cause that really m moved me. It was seeing her deflect um, criticism from men, um, seeing her, um, again, just be authentically who she was, and, um, you know, being told she was going to fail and going through with the filibuster anyway. And um, that meant so much to me. I just, seeing someone um, just stay true to who they knew they were um, and fighting for women. Um, and she never raised her voice. She never lost her cool. And although that's okay too, you know, to do those things, I'm not saying that, but it just was a really powerful moment for me. Um, to see a woman, um, you know, endure something like that and endure it in such a, um, you know, positive way. I know uh, your career has taken some twists and turns, and uh, I don't ever recall you coming to me when you were young saying, Daddy, I want to be a depressive drunk. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about... Uh, you know, the changes that you've done career-wise and uh, maybe some uh, women that were uh, responsible or that helped you? Well, so, um, yes, I've struggled with depression and um, alcoholism my whole life. And, um, you know, I remember that, you know, from an early the earliest of my memories, I've always had what I call this hamster in the wheel in my brain. And this hamster is always running. And I think that a lot of attorneys have the hamster in the wheel that's always running. It makes us really good litigators. It makes us persistent. Um, it makes us tenacious. But my hamster also happened to be a real jerk. And my hamster would tell me things like, you know, you're a phony, you're an imposter, your daddy got you everything. Um, and if anyone ever really knew who you were, they would never accept you. And, I mean, this was a narrative of mine and a false narrative of mine from a very early age. And um, what's crazy about that is what that hamster was telling me did not comport at all with what was actually going on in my life. Um, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting across the table from me. Um, you know, I always felt loved, um, or I always knew I was loved. I had very supportive parents. I was very well-liked. I was smart enough to get in, you know, to UT Law. So, you know, these lies that I was hearing, that was the depression. And, it, you know, my earliest memories are hearing that narrative. And I took my first drink of alcohol when I was 13 years old, and I was in the Westlake High School parking lot in Austin, Texas, and yes, I went to high school when the earth was still cooling, and you could drink in the high school parking lot and not get in trouble. And um, I remember them, pass, I was standing in a circle, and they were passing around this bottle of rum, and I took a swig, and I, I hated the way it tasted. I hated the way it made my eyes burn. But in about 20 minutes, for the first time in my life, that hamster quit running, and those voices stopped. 
And for the first time in my life, I knew I was the cutest girl in the room. I didn't care what she thought about me. And uh, my love affair with alcohol began at a really early age. And um, from the beginning, I drank to black out. I mean, I drank to forget, to escape feelings. And that was stress and anger, but it was also joy and happiness because I didn't, my narrative to myself was, you didn't earn this, this isn't yours. You're a phony, and so I didn't believe that I deserved even to be happy. Um, and um, nine years ago on Mother's Day, I attempted to take my own life. And I know you remember that day very well. And, um, you know, I know it was a surprise to you, Dad. And it was a surprise to my friends, my coworkers, people that were closest to me. And that this kind of what I'm about to say kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which was, you know, I, I didn't come forward with my depression and my alcoholism. I was an active alcoholic at the time. Um, I didn't come forward and talk about those things because for two reasons, one, um, I had managed my life since I was 13 years old with alcohol and I, I didn't know how to do life without alcohol. And I wasn't interested in quitting drinking. And I knew if y'all knew how bad it was, you would want me to quit drinking. And I didn't want to. And two, um, you know, I was a woman litigator. And I had fought so hard the stereotype of being, you know, that we get labeled with, which is women are crazy and unstable and emotional. And I was terrified that my career would be over if I came forward and talked about my depression and my suicidal ideations. I thought for sure as a woman, I would never practice law again. And so I, I just didn't come forward. Well, and I do definitely remember uh, when you try to take your own life and uh, that sort of changed the direction that you wanted to go uh, as a human being and, and in the law. And when you finally, uh, did make a call to T-Lab. Tell us, tell us about that and how that changed and put you on your current path. Well, and you know, who knew that being a drunk would actually end up getting me my dream job? I mean, that's usually not the ending of that story. You know, uh, my grandmother always said that sometimes God puts the best presents in shitty wrapping paper. <laughs> well, this was definitely crappy wrapping paper. Um, well, so... I went to rehab, I should say, um, that it was really hard to argue. My parents um, and the psychiatrist I was seeing at the time um, both advocated for rehab for me um, after that night, after I attempted to take my life. And it was really hard for me to argue that, that I shouldn't go to rehab. Now, I was expecting the Lindsay Lohan kind of rehab with, you know, Pacific Palisades, a really nice view, Bikram Yoga, but I ended up going to Shoal Creek Hospital in Austin, which is bare bones, and I was entered into a dual treatment program for substance abuse and for depression. And once I got stable enough, um, I reached out to TWAP, the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program, which is um, where I work now. And um, I... For those of you that know her, Cameron Van answered the phone. And I've got to say real quick, interject, that she is absolutely one of my sheroes. Because if it were not for Cameron answering that phone, 
and talking to an absolutely terrified, lost human being, um, which was me, um, I, I wouldn't be here today. I absolutely credit her with, you know, saving my life and steering me in the direction of, you know, helping others who are suffering or have depression or suffering from substance abuse. Um, so I called TLAP and um, I reported myself, and reported isn't the right word to use. I, um, I asked for help because um, I had heard, and it was correct, that TLAP could, correct, could connect me with mental health services that I needed, a therapist. Um, I had heard that TLAP could help, you know, pay for treatment if I needed it, um, and that TLAP could connect me with peer support. And by peer support, I meant that, that, that I, I knew that TLAP had a group of volunteers, other lawyers, who had been through what I had been through and come out on the other side uh, that I could talk to. Um, and Cameron connected me with, with all of those things. Um, actually, actually, I didn't need um, help financially, but um, it, it was there if I needed it. So, um, you know, I, TLAP works in a, in, a, in a few ways. And one way is the way that I utilize TLAP, and I called and asked for help for myself. But I think it's important to know that with TLAP, you can also call if you're worried about someone else. And um, you can call anonymously. It is absolutely, totally confidential. And TLAP will, um, if you're worried about someone, um, I mean, I was a walking malpractice case. And if someone had, you know, been worried about me, they could have absolutely called and said, hello, you know, I'm worried about Erica. This, this, and this is happening. And, um, you know, TLOP can, can take it from there. And, um, you know, TLAP offers, as I mentioned earlier, peer support. TLAP can connect. It's like Yelp for lawyers who are experiencing mental health issues or substance abuse issues. We can connect you with um, therapists that can help or psychiatrists that can help. And what's great about it is that we, we just, we kind of have this collection of psychiatrists and, and, and health professionals that are, we call them lawyer tested. They've been recommended to us by other lawyers who have actually used them. Um, we can connect you with the Sharon Crowley Trust. And most people that um, by the time they reach out to TLAP, they're having serious financial issues. They don't have health insurance. Um, we can connect you, you can apply to funding from the trust for mental health visits, for medication, for treatment. Um, and I can't stress enough how important peer support is. And just calling and talking to someone who knows exactly what you're going through. And TLAP has a group of volunteers all over the state of Texas who, you know, have had, you know, have struggled with substance abuse, mental health, um, all of those issues. And we can connect someone that calls to uh, get them talking to someone that really understands what they're going through. Um, you know, something that was really hard for me to understand, and I think as lawyers, we overcomplicate everything, and I certainly overcomplicated, you know, dealing with my own mental wellness, and I know when I was in the throes of depression, it felt so huge, 
that I felt like I had to respond in kind to get better, you know, and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have time to move to Nepal and live in a yurt and become one with myself. And and I thought that had to be my approach to mental health was this huge gesture. But the good news is for all of us busy lawyers out there is what science tells us is really we can do little things throughout our day to really improve our mental health. And, um, you know, one of those things, and I think the most important thing is to put yourself first. And I mean, what do we hear every time we're in an airplane and they're talking about cabin pressure and the flight attendant pulls down that mask? She says, you've got to put the mask on yourself first and then you help others. And there's a reason for that. I mean, if we are incapacitated, if we have no energy, if our if we are not mentally well, you know, we're of no service to our family. Um, we're certainly not fit to help our clients, and we have an ethical obligation to be mentally fit um, and help our clients. And so make yourself a priority. And again, if you have time to go to Nepal and live in a year, do it. But you can put yourself by first by doing little things. For example, um, go and get that dry cleaning that has been any dry cleaners for six months. I mean, you know, another thing is I get up um, every couple hours or so, I get up from my computer and I'll walk around the office. You know, I do little field trips and say hi to all my buddies now at the state bar. Um, that's, that is putting yourself first. Um, you know, just little things you can do. You know, and I, I want to talk a little bit about work because, you know, we're, as attorneys, we're with our work families often more than we are with our own families. I know that was the case with me. And I know that, you know, I've mentioned before how good I was at hiding the turmoil um, that I was experiencing, but a lot of my behaviors that might have indicated that I was not well um, really manifested at work. And I want to talk about those a little bit because, you know, we need to put down our iPhones and start paying attention to our coworkers. And we also need to start listening to our guts. And if our gut is telling us, you know, Sarah seems off, uh, Dickie seems, he doesn't seem himself, we need to trust our gut and we need to reach out to, to our friends and ask them what's going on. And some things that I did at work that, you know, really indicated that that I was struggling um, were um, I didn't call back clients. You could not get me to call back a client for anything. And the reason why was because I knew I wasn't doing my job. I knew they would yell at me about that, and they should. And so I didn't call clients back. Another thing I did was rearrange my schedule. I rearranged and canceled and rescheduled uh, meetings, um, you know, anything like nobody's business. Another thing I did was call in sick all the time. And, um, you know, a lot of times there isn't smoke where there's fire, and those may not be indicators that things are not going well for someone, but for me, they definitely were. And, um, you know, Dad, I'm curious because, you know, you, you and Mom and all people that were closest to me were really surprised when um, I attempted to take my life. And I'm just interested on your take on things and, and, you know, kind of what you experienced as someone who's had been in recovery yourself for so long. Um, and just as a father, just, you know, tell me a little bit about. Well, obviously to any parent, it is a wake up call. 
when uh, your child uh, tries to take their own life. And it was certainly a wake-up call for your mother and me. And uh, as you were saying, I mean, I could pass a, a Daubert test with the state court or federal court on being a drunk. And uh, I've been somewhere now 30-something years and 20-something when this happened to you. And uh, I never saw it coming. Uh, even though I'm an alcoholic and do all the signs and everything, I, I never did uh, see it coming. And so uh, I'm really proud of you because it's always hard. I mean, I know when I got into recovery, I was worried that, uh, uh, you know, that this would ruin my law practice. But, you know, I had about 20 years and I was established and then I'm a male. And so uh, I know how difficult it had to be for you because uh, you were much younger and, and, and as a woman. And you're right, uh, in, uh, in law and in uh, society, they look at drinking and problems with women different than they do men. So, uh, you know, one, I was very pleased that you weren't smart enough to pull it off when you tried to take your life. And then that, uh, through the help of Cameron and, and others, that you were able to do something and, uh, you know, and turn your life around. And, um, you know, they talk about, in life, uh, about having a mission. And one of the best definitions of mission that I've ever heard was uh, your mission is when the uh, talents and abilities you love, most love using, meet the needs of the world around you. And I think uh, definitely TLAP has become your mission. And I'm very proud of the work you do and uh, the people that uh, whose life you've saved and changed. Well, I know that uh, from personal experience and from working with you, and then I do a lot of volunteer work for TLAP, that lawyers are really scared to uh, admit that they have a problem, either with depression, mental Ill types of mental illness, or uh, drugs or alcohol. What advice would you give to lawyers that you know are, are suffering? from uh, one of these impairments? Well, two things. One is ask for help, and two is you, you, you may not be able to fix this. And I think as lawyers, um, people pay us a lot of money to fix their problems. And I think that we think that we can fix this, that we can fix our addiction, that we can fix our mental health. I mean, at least I thought I could. I thought, I, I can get this. I can get a handle on this. And, you know, I just like to, a story I like to tell is, and I, I all of you practicing attorneys out there have had a client like this who someone hires you, they're not a lawyer, they go home and they watch a YouTube video on probate law and they become a legal expert. And they come into your office and it does not matter that you have a whole wall Full of documents that say that you are the expert in law you know they tell you how to do your job um, and it's annoying and you know I think we need to have the same kind of attitude when it comes to seeking help for mental health you are not the expert you don't need to be consulting with yourself about your own mental health you know we need to be reaching out to people that are qualified that can help us walk through these problems um, and ask for help. I think I, I didn't want to burden anyone with my problems. And I, um, I didn't want um, anyone to feel sorry for me. Um, 
um, I didn't want to ask for help. And what we know is that actually people really like being asked for help. Um, it makes people feel purposeful. It makes people feel wise. And it takes people out of their own problems when we ask for assistance. And something I've got to say is, and I'm, I'm stealing this from another shero of mine, Terry Hill, who is a lawyer in Dallas and an advocate for um, suicide prevention. Um, so we got to stop minding our own business. You are not going to put the idea of suicide in someone's head. If someone is already having suicidal ideations, um, it's not going to suddenly dawn on them, um, oh, yes, I'm suicidal, if you ask the question. We've got to ask the tough questions, and we've got to be direct. Um, if you are worried about someone, ask them, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, you know, and if we get the answer of yes, or if we're worried about someone, you know, help refer them to someone that can help them. From working with treatment centers over the years, uh, those treatment centers that uh, work with a lot of professionals will say that the key to getting a lawyer sober or a lawyer into treatment is his law practice even more so rightfully or wrongfully than, than their family. But that a lawyer has so much wrapped up in his self-esteem or her self-esteem in the law practice. And so uh, senior partners can be so instrumental in helping a lawyer get help uh, because, as I said, their job or their profession is sort of what they have their uh, self-esteem hooked up in. But the flip side of that's true, too. Uh, it's got to come from the top down. And, and, and senior lawyers, it doesn't make a damn what's in your policy manual or your bylaws. or all. It's how you treat and work with people. And so I think the key to helping uh, lawyers and young lawyers, male or female, that uh, need help uh, are the attitude and the non-judgmental attitude of senior partners, that they really mean what they say on getting help. Not that it's a bunch of cold words on a piece of paper. Uh, and, and that comes from the attitude at the very top of any, of any law firm. Uh, and, uh, you know, even those like a defense firm for the old black hearts, uh, it really matters to your bottom line. Because if you have a lawyer that's suffering from depression or is impaired because of drugs and alcohol, um, you know, you got two options, in my opinion. One, call TLAP and get them help, or two, call your E&O carrier, because they're a walking malpractice case. You know, Erica, even though I'm an alcoholic and re in recovery, I never recognized the signs uh, that what you were going through. So uh, what final thoughts do you have for lawyers that are suffering from either chemical dependency or depression or something. Those that maybe the senior partners don't recognize. What final thoughts do you have for them? Well, for those of you out there that, that are like me and good at hiding what's really going on, get help and get help now. Reach out. Um, it does not have to get to the point where I got. And... Um, 
if I had accepted help from a professional earlier, if I had stayed on my meds like I take them now regularly, um, I think my story um, could have been different. And I'm really lucky that my story didn't end on Mother's Day nine years ago. And um, I just, I can't say enough. Um, reach out for help. Get the help you need. Um, and those are my final thoughts. Dickie and Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Erica, your story is incredibly powerful, and I think it will help many of our listeners. Um, thank you for joining us on Wonder Women Wednesdays, and we hope that you'll check us out um, and listen to other episodes. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the work we're doing by liking the Texas Young Lawyers Association's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Tex Young Lawyers. And tune in for our next episode on Wonder Women Wednesday.